I can't hear anything. My my ear is uh can't believe you did that. You think I should have bargained with that guy? Yeah. I do. You could have missed. You could have killed me. Yeah. How bad's that ear? It's terrible. I'm gonna have permanent hearing damage. Let me see it. Can you hear what I'm saying now? Yeah. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and welcome to episode 95. Yay, 95. And luckily, it stopped thunderstorming. Yeah. Which is great, because we're recording this live from the Pivotal Film tent. Yeah, um, we, we were... Deep in the Connecticut wilderness. We were unfortunately kicked out of the, of the suites for, for a week. Yeah. So, we're in the tent, and... Apparently, uh, we weren't allowed to have an orchestra. <laughs> but when you're outside... In the forest, you can have whatever you want. You just can't touch the side of the tent. Or because then the water comes in. We usually start each episode, and by usually I mean we always start always. Our episode with a beer. What is this? This beer is model? not a local beer. I believe oh. this is from Omnipolo, which is distributed through New York, but I believe Omnipolo's actually a European brewery. So breaking the rules here. But this is one of my preferred kind of fun beers, and I I drank a lot this weekend because a friend of mine is, is leaving soon, and I just wanted to have a fun beer and not <laughs> something that's getting me sad. So this is a Chateau from Omnipolo. It is a peach slush IPA. Um, it's brewed with peach and lactose sugar, so if you're lactose intolerant, you're going to be really feeling real Here fucking bad. <laughs> to me, this thing tastes like a uh, peach creamsicle to me. Yeah. Although I'm also drinking coffee at the same time. And it's kind of ruining the vibe, but... Yeah, I'm not getting a lot of the uh, the creaminess. A little a hint of the peach. Not so much the cream. Only a hint of the peach. Hmm. Huh. Just get your taste buds checked. You fuck. Hmm. I don't know. Do you like it? It's good. It tastes... It's tasty. Yeah. I just am it's not tasting refreshing. the things that I it's think I should be tasting. It's a very refreshing IPA. It is. It's, uh... It's smooth. And I think the peach and probably the lactose sugar... Cut out yeah. a little, like, the well, hoppiness. Well, the lactose is usually used to do that. Like, there's a lot of... I wouldn't call this necessarily, but there's a big trend right now called milkshake IPAs. Ugh. <laughs> Which is just, you know, throwing a shit ton of lactose into your beer to kind of, like, smooth it out. And sometimes right. that's done well, like this, for example. I pointed to it at first as though our listeners can see me pointing. Well, actually, the, the can is, is, looks like a drippy... Yeah. Like wet, slimy, dripping, silly putty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of looks like a like a peach brain. Pretty but, um, you know, good a lot, can, of, a lot of breweries are doing that lactose thing now, and it's kind of done poorly. They just run out of things. This is something do. I think that does it well. Um, we want to jump into the idea that the Oscars have announced that next year, potentially... Potentially next year. There's, there will be... There's, there's going to shortly, soon be... Right. Um, a new category for best popular feature. Our best, like... 
production in popular film is or, or some, achievement in popular yeah, film. I don't, I think I don't actually think they know what the category is going to. Well, that was the be. press release made it sound like they were working on trying yeah. to figure out what this is going to, you know, entail and 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 you know who would be eligible for it. And but the idea is that uh, that combined with you know reducing the production to three hours, um, putting a lot of the technical categories in commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is meant to, they're saying, appeal to a wider audience because they've been losing the audience for years. Did you say a wider, 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 wider audience or wider audience? Wider. Ah, okay. I wasn't sure. Um, I mean, we both think this idea is terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Definitively? Yeah. I mean, the Oscars should be, if they're going to do anything, I think they should be reducing categories. Um, I've already was not a fan of best animated feature existing. I think if an animated film is good enough to stand on its own merits, it's going to get nominated for best picture uh-huh. as seen with like recent examples. Um, and if you're going to add categories, there's better categories. Yeah. To add. Well, I think animated feature, you always end, you end up with like two or three good ones and then a, a boss baby or a bolt or, you know, some kind of so, junk animated movie. So what are the bad ones in that example? Have you ever seen Boss Baby? I no. It's it's atrocious. Really? It is. Oh, you've seen it. I have I was seen about to say, it. Why have you seen it? Because you have children. I've seen Storks. Wait, I've you seen have Boss Baby. You have children, so you can see these movies, so you can like justify watching these films. Like, yeah, that's why oh, you yeah, had a kid. Yeah, yeah. You're like Jane and sure. Linus. I had you, so I can watch Boss Baby without yes. feeling guilty about it. The second they were born, I was like, yes, Boss Baby. <laughs> you bought your tickets to. Brother Bear 2. <laughs> I bought my tickets for all of the Alec Baldwin animated movies where he does a voice. Oh. I, I just have a membership in that club. Um, Did you see the Emoji movie? I have not. I've resisted the Emoji movie at all at all costs. I don't think that even appeals to a child, right? Like, what is it, what's the audience? Really? I once saw um, Jane watching the Emoji movie, Did and you? she just kind of had like a dead stare on her face. And I think... Well, that's what that does. That's what right. that film... It's kind of like Halloween Until the 3 poop- season of The Witch. <laughs> Why like, is there know, a silver shamrock like commercial that's supposed to like kill the kids? Is there a poop emoji that walks through that movie too? Have you not seen? <laughs> I'm assuming you haven't seen Halloween three seasons. Is the whole movie like uh, an emblematic of a poop emoji? I'm completely off track. Just ignore, <laughs> ignore the metaphor. Um, but yeah, this is a terrible idea. Um, I feel like I think uh, uh, I've seen some people suggest if they're going to do this that they need to then reduce the best picture category to back to five movies. But I kind of like the 10 movie thing. I mean, I think they yeah, sometimes pick like, the wrong and, eight, nine, and 10. And I do like the idea that a film had to get a certain, I mean, it wasn't necessarily going to be locked in at 10. A film had to receive right. a certain amount of votes sure. in order to be in the best picture list. And I think that's a great idea. I think you're seeing films that weren't going to be nominated for best picture that weren't nominated for best picture that de- deserve the recognition of an audience, you know, that pe- the people that will go see a movie just because it's nominated for Best Picture. Right. They wouldn't have seen things like A Serious Man. Um, I can't think of another example off the top of my head. Well, I think... The, um, a Serious Man I isn't an important film to me at all. Yeah. <laughs> I read an article about the fact that Lady Bird um, got a big bump. It made a pretty good amount of money anyway, and then getting nominated for Best Director and Best Picture um, and Best Actress really kind of knocked it into another... Like level of and there's financial always, success. There's always the arguments that a lot of films that ended up being widely successful in terms of nominations might have not even entered the conversation in the years of the five features. You know, something like Get Out 
which right. ended up being a major nominee in terms of the big two, four major categories, might have not even gotten to that point in the conversation if the option of a wider field wasn't there. Well, and I feel like that's, I feel like last year was a perfect example of this where I didn't like Shape of Water, um, you know, and you weren't crazy about three billboards. I feel like you had seven movies in there that needed to get recognition for, like, Picture of the Year. That needed to be in some kind of... Tower. Well, no, Darkest Hour was is out. That's what I'm saying. I'm not counting Darkest Hour as one of those movies. I just wanted to, once again, at about the third straight week, mention how little we thought of Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour is terrible. Yeah. It's a terrible movie. Um, apparently, Winston Churchill didn't sweat once throughout the entire, Joe, entire campaign of Joe World Wright, War II. Joe Wright, stop making movies. It's enough. Just, just don't. I mean, Hannah was okay. Mm-hmm. But besides that... You're done. No, I've, it's I've fine. had enough of Joe Wright movies. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it's interesting to go back and look at. So if they did this last year. Um, what would the what would the five movies be? Let's assume it's five movies in the popular movie category. Well, I guess. I be, mean, you look at it. Get Out probably gets nominated there because Get Out is a pop was a popular film. Get Out, right? Made, but it made not made a lot of but money. I, you, but the, how they, how are they going to define the criteria? It right. is a popular like the only so way So let's assume that Get Out let's assume that Get Out's not on the list because it was nominated for best picture. But you're it, looking it, at what? Like you're looking at Logan, The Greatest Showman. It it is was, sneaks in there. Was Wonder Woman last year or was that the Wonder year before? Wonder Woman was last year. So Wonder Woman probably right? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean um what's the fifth I I just don't See that's I mean, the this problem is where you have is, the animated movies that you got Coco you yeah, know, probably Coco. is there too, but Coco won Best Animated Feature. So are they running at Best Popular Feature? Are they running a Best Animated Feature? Or are they throwing their whole hat into Best well, I mean, Feature? And or... they end up running it, like Brief said, those animated features a lot of times like, double dip and pop in Best Film. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the problem, is, is how are they going to define Best Popular Film? And taking for an example where, and I think this is a problem, look at something like Get Out. Get Out made... A tremendous amount of money, enough money to where I think it, it kind of crosses the threshold for what they're going to define as popular film. Mm-hmm. And if it is kind of pocketed into that category, does it? Do they then consider that enough? Do the nom- do the the voters well, consider this to be enough? And for example, we kind of bring up the fact, and we talked about this off air. Yeah, is this what they're doing for something like Black Panther? I don't necessarily think Black Panther is worthy so far of a nomination, but is this going to be the trend where they get well, to take these films and kind of pocket them into this category and then forget it and be like, hey, we did it. Yeah. We I'm, recognized it. I think everybody kind of agrees that they've made this award up to ensure that Black Panther gets nominated for something. Yeah. Um, I mean, because beyond the technical nominations that right. they've already admitted they think nobody cares about, which is fucking wrong. Which I think is wrong, too, because I, I think... I mean, I guess we care about it, but we're a but very But people that watch the people. Oscars just to watch people wear dresses and see... Um, I mean, I like the things that people care about regarding the Oscars. I don't care about at all, like Jimmy Kimmel or looking at famous people or anything like this. I or know. watching a bunch of like not famous people walking into the auditorium. Yeah, it's dumb. I mean, that's and that's the big part too. Is like if you're going to cut shit out, cut these, cut the other that... stuff out, cut the montages out. I don't need any more montages. Yeah, and exactly, or cut out like half of the comedy segments that you don't need anymore. Yeah, that, just... that people already feel are 
just I don't want not necessarily offensive are just lame. But I feel like if they made this a two hour award show that was just filled with awards and speeches and a couple of clips from movies from this year, I feel like more people would watch it. I feel like one of the problems with this show is that it's like a major time investment. Yes. And people don't feel like sitting down and just plopping themselves in front of the TV for four hours waiting to find out who won Best Picture when it's already overrun, you know, midnight. Yeah, exactly. And you could have still that kind of like pomp and circumstance by having the various presenters, their two minutes of time to, with their dresses, with their suits, doing their little comedy bits within the context of the announcement of the nomination. Yeah. And then kind of go with the process. You still keep a couple, of, you still keep your monologues, maybe a sketch or two. Mm-hmm. You definitely keep your music performances because I think people do like those. But just make them less elaborate. Yeah. And no, make exactly. them, you know, no dance numbers. Just. Just have the person that sang the song come out and sing the song. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, I don't know if I completely agree with that. I don't. Do you like dancing? Gonna, no, I I don't personally care, but I do see the audience for that. I remember a few years ago, where Justin Timberlake had. Um, oh, the Trolls year. The Trolls year. The Trolls song. Yeah. Was it the Trolls song? Uh, yeah. But they did that that big number in the can't beginning of the, the show. Can't stop the feeling. Yeah, can't stop the feeling, and people. That's something that caught mentioned repeatedly. So like those things. Are recognized this is, I mean, by an audience. I, I think this is why this makes people the the thing about this that makes people the angriest. I think is that they are manufacturing feelings almost. Yeah, no, exactly. Can't stop the feeling, which is the name of that song that Justin Timberlake did for Trolls. Of course, deserves to be nominated for best song, um, which means that Justin Timberlake is going to be there. Which means that Justin Timberlake is going to perform, and people want to see that. But you can't just make a shit up and say you know you know let's insert a new category to ensure that justin timberlake comes to this year's oscars or to ensure that black panther gets nominated for an oscar this year um or to ensure you know whatever other dumbass thing they want they're trying to accomplish with this to make sure that you get more popular movies but what if what if avengers and infinity war gets nominated for an oscar what if Avengers Infinity War wins that Oscar? A film Oscar. A feature Oscar. Yeah. I mean, what I, I, and that's clearly... No one's going to say... No one, not one person writing anywhere has said, you know what deserves an Academy Award mention? Infinity War. Check it off. That's one, one out of the ten. No one said that because it doesn't. It's just... It's a, it's a I mean, it's popcorn. an entertaining film, it's but it's inter- popcorn, yeah. Right. It's not designed... I don't want to say designed to win awards, but it's not designed to reach an audience beyond the people that are going to go see that. Um, Which I mean, or to say anything, and, and to say anything beyond go see more Marvel movies. Um, but I think, I mean, I, for me, one of the so the movie I saw this weekend was um, Black Klansman. No, let's talk Spike, about that for a while. Spike Lee's new movie. Um, I, I did, like I said, I did, was not able to see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is cool. Well, it's going to happen. Um, so I just get wanted, the fuck over it, guys. I just want to make sure I saw it before it left. You know what I mean? Because it seems like one of those movies that would disappear. But mm. it made pretty good money the first weekend. Um, it stars John David Washington as uh, Detective Ron Stallworth. Um, and he is the first African-American uh, police officer in the Colorado Springs Police Department. And the movie takes place in the 70s. Um, and he one day calls the Klu Ku Klux Klan and infiltrates through a series of, of machinations, infiltrates using Adam Driver playing uh, Detective Flip Zimmerman as his white counterpart to infiltrate 
the the Ku Klux Klan. Um, while that's happening, the Colorado Springs Police Department is also having some trouble with, um, or they're perceiving a trouble with um, the Black Student Union inviting former Black Panther members to come speak at a rally. Um, it's I mean, it's a tremendous movie. I mean, I'm on. I sometimes really love Spike Lee a lot and desperately and want to hug him. I have a Spike Lee movie very high on my list. Um, and then sometimes I'm just kind he of... He Got Game. Luke, yeah, He Got Game's a good movie. I actually really like He Got Game. Um, and I'm kind of sometimes lukewarm. I didn't love 25th Hour. but And I didn't love... I didn't respond to Chirac. Um, but I saw Chirac. It was, you know, it was good. And I understand why someone would like it. It just didn't speak to me. Um, but yeah, He Got Game is excellent. I won't mention the other movie because it's up. Malcolm um, X is fine. I well, that's the thing. I love Malcolm X. Um, and this, I saw Malcolm X when I was young, so I don't know if I think maybe it's just a little long in the tooth for me. Well, at that, I think at this is point. actually I think this and Malcolm X correspond pretty well together because there's a lot of the energy is really high, and he's doing, um, he's doing really respectful work. Also, you know how Spike Lee can kind of his movies can be kind of disjointed, and you know he's just throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, and mm. doing a lot of visual visual tricks and you know um visual jokes and things like that and he has some of that in here too but it's all in service of this really um this much greater purpose um and it's a it's a it's a phenomenal movie i everyone should see it you know yeah i definitely tend to see i just um we're gonna get to this weekend but my problem with this is that conceivably and it, it I, he th- I think he won something he won a special award i think at can this year it screened in competition at can i believe um so my problem with this Oscar category is that conceivably you can have two black, predominantly black movies with by black directors in competition in the best picture category. Um, you might have more. I mean, maybe Sorry to Bother You sneaks in somewhere. We have, we have Steve McQueen's uh, Widows also coming up. Yep, which people seem to think you know very highly of beyond its trailer being looking like a standard issue action movie. Um, well, because that's a Steve McQueen movie. I mean... Well, there hasn't, a, been, there hasn't really been a Steve McQueen film that's been. Steve McQueen of, with Viola Davis is going to be yeah. is going to be an intense movie. Um, you could have all these things, but if Widows makes a lot of money and Black Panther made a lot of money, how are these these movies yeah, aren't going to be? You got the uh, Grand Jury Prize for it. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. So these movies aren't going to be in competition with each other. We're going to deny. We're going to manufacture out of the Oscars the exact thing that the Oscars has been trying to manufacture in for, you know, five, six years now. I know, I don't necessarily manufacture it, but I deservedly need to be in. Sure, sure, but they're doing, like, you know, their... Um, the thing that they've been noted to be extraordinary... To be lacking ex- in that they were supposed to be working on to, to remedy. To. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but by breaking up these movies like this, by removing them out of, like, the, you know, by separating them like that, you're kind of watering the whole thing down. You're almost saying like there's you're it's almost like an act of tokenism. Like you can have this category, you can have one in this category, and then you know you can have some other stuff over here. And whether that's the intention or not is you know different conversation. But, but just, as we said, something like Get Out, you know, conceivably something like that movie probably wouldn't have been in the conversation initially because it is a horror film slasher tropes and, and follows the tropes of a horror film exceedingly well yeah um and and says has a lot more to say than an ordinary horror film but does this category if it exists 
in years prior doesn't mean that the voters feel that you know get out the get out is a movie that is belongs in this category and so we don't really have to talk about it we can talk about maybe in screenplay but we don't necessarily have to talk about it as a uh, in direction or lead actor or, or is it, picture or is it just taken less seriously because yeah, it's exactly. a less serious category by inserting get out in here are and we essentially we- saying that you know, it isn't a film, as it's kind of being perceived now, which is a film that kind of captured, like, the zeitgeist of the time, is it now just a film that a bunch of people really liked? And that's, and I think that's the big conversation, is is best picture isn't supposed to necessarily mean best picture that you would expect the Academy to nominate. There's a film that's on your list today that got nominated for best picture that's very much a film that I believe isn't. No. an Oscar movie at all. Absolutely not. And when those films kind of exceed expectations like that or do something extraordinarily well, even if it's within the genre or it, it follows the, the motifs and tropes of a, of a genre such as, you know, I, like I said, I wasn't a big fan of Black Panther, but... I knew there was I. Critically, yeah. critically, you know, people are saying this is a benchmark for the superhero genre and that it exceeds the superhero genre. If that is the case then Best Picture is there where for goes. those films. Especially yeah. now that there's a field of 10. Well, so I remember when like Beauty and the Beast got nominated in the in the Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 92, 91. I guess. 91. Yeah, 92. 92 awards. Um, that was only five back then. Yeah, and that. it was an animated movie. And it obviously exceeded... And it, it lost, and it lost to Silence of the Lambs, which is another film that was at that time believed to be just a really well-done psychological thriller, but still within that genre. Yeah, or something like Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, or all, but I don't remember if Two Towers got nominated. But Fellowship of the Fellowship of the Ring definitely did. I actually did. don't remember if Two Towers got I think nominated. Two I think Towers it did, did too. Yeah, but you know, and eventually culminating with Return of the King winning. When you have a film that is a blockbuster, it is a popular film that does it to the highest standards, it's going to be recognized. Right. And if you create this category, and I think that's the problem with this category is not not so much the recognitions of films that don't deserve to be there. Sure, that is an example. You're going to have films that shouldn't be necessarily in the conversation. Not or, because they're not of quality, but they're not intended to be films recognized, recognized for their artistic or scientific right. merit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like Infinity War. Highly entertaining. Nobody was making that movie thinking that they were going to you know, win Best Art Direction. Um, but when a film does that, even if that wasn't the intention, but exceeds those expectations and does now enter the conversation of the artistic merit. That is why the Oscars are yeah. there. I don't know. It's um, It seems ill-conceived um, and designed just to get eyeballs on the screen. Yeah, and... and while the, sacrificing, though, the um, prestige and integrity, uh, whatever integrity you people may or may not think the Oscars have, you and me think they have a lot of integrity... But sacrificing that integrity. And I think me and you kind of almost differ in how they're going to... I mean, maybe we, we agree, but but I see nominating films that don't deserve to be nominated has less of an issue than not nominating films that do deserve to be yeah. in what will be considered the higher category. No matter what, this best popular film will not be the final you know, award given on the night. It's still going to be that lesser than best well, picture. Would you be surprised if best popular film is like becomes the second award or something? 
just to get the ball rolling. Yeah, or like you the know, first, or like something. the first thing announced. Like that, like did best animated film a few years of like you know the first one announced. Yeah. They just you know oh best popular film okay now that that's out of the way we can get down to the, the business of thing. doing whatever this yeah. you know the actual thing. We're gonna even do it. we're gonna we'll do start the during the commercial break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the monologue will just be that. They okay. won't do a monologue anymore. Well, I mean, that that is half a solution actually. Yeah, there you go. Um, all right, so. I don't have anything else. else to say. All right, so let's take a break and then we'll come back with our lists. Welcome back. My number 95 is the seminal 1982 Ridley Scott classic neo noir Blade Runner, which recently had a very popular, and by popular I mean box office Uh-oh. failure. Sequel uh, last October. What what is there exactly to say about Blade Runner? I typically when I do this list, I try to like especially last week with Green Room, mm-hmm. I try to have a conversation where I kind of academically break down my feelings. And for something like Green Room, no, normally a film like that wouldn't have a place on a top hundred list. But that speaks to me in a way that I feel a discussion's warranted. And I don't think there's a lot of discussions about like why films like Green Room or that sort of like clean shaven mm-hmm. are normally on these top 100 lists. And the big thing about this top pop of this list is how it shaped our vision of film. And so yeah. if you want a discussion about the academic merits of Blade Runner, there is a litany of literature, documentaries, yeah. anything about Blade Runner. There's seven fucking versions Just of this movie. Just go find someone that's 40 and, years old and they'll tell you all about Blade yeah. Runner. Yeah. And, you know, the, usually they reintroduce movies that we haven't had a discussion of that there's not maybe not a lot of discussion about it. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of discussion about both Blade Runner a lot. I mean, yeah. obviously, and and your film coming uh-huh. up. So this could be kind of a, a definitely an episode where we discuss why it shaped our vision of film yeah, more yeah. so than anything else. I think so too. Um, to quickly explain Blade Runner to the one person who <laughs> doesn't know what we're talking about, completely going against what I just said. Harrison Ford uh, plays Rick Deckard, a Blade Runner who is chasing after a rogue legion of replicants who are androids with short lifespans. Um, his job is to exterminate or retire these replicants, led by Roy Beatty, played by Rugger Howard. Oh, yeah. Um, and then a noir film ensues. Yeah, and, and it's, what's the year? 2000... 2019, 2019. Yeah. yes. November 2019. So we have, you know, something to look forward to. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> um, so really, this movie, I saw this, I didn't see this movie until the 2007 final cut had come out. I'd never saw any version before that. I got for a Christmas present, even before I'd even seen the movie, um, the, the four disc set uh-huh. uh, featuring, I think, like five different cuts of the film. Uh, the, the theatrical cut, which I've still never seen, the director's cut. And so you, have you never seen the one with the voiceover? No. Never seen the original version, which I've heard interesting things. I've watched like the ending of it, the ending voiceover. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That's the only one I've ever seen. Really? The original. Yeah. And it is, it's awful. Is that, is that what you watched in yeah. preparation for this? Yeah. Oh, we're going to have two wildly different conversations. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's funny. I just ignore it. It's so bad. That yeah. if you know how to watch a movie, you just, after the first Deckard voiceover, you're just like, well, I can't pay any attention to that. Yeah. No, but um, 
so this movie speaks to me on, on just purely its world building. Uh-huh. This is a movie that wallows in its world. And it's noted as being something that gave birth to a whole genre or, you know, manufactured a genre, that kind of cyberpunk genre. Mm-hmm. But especially as somebody who we've talked about this before is grew up with video games, heavily had video games kind of be a major part of my life. Films like this, another Ridley Scott movie, Alien, kind of shaped the video games I sort of played. Mm-hmm. And this movie so perfectly craps this world. Um, production designed by Lawrence uh, Paul, David Schneider, everything about this world feels real. And and that was the reason this spoke to me. Is is This is one of the first movies... I had seen that what that final cut at least feels like a, a decently well constructed film, a well constructed narrative with something to say mm-hmm. um, beyond just pure entertainment that then exists in that world. That world doesn't feel like it's painted in; it feels like it's lived in. Well, and that um, Pauline Kael, you know, reviewing it in 1982, um, didn't really like the movie, mm-hmm. but she kind of said something similar in that oh, um, a movie that is has constructed as detailed a, a science fiction universe as this one has um, needs to be acknowledged and paid attention to, you know, regardless of, of, of you know, narrative or acting or whatever. Um, it's a movie that deserves, deserves to be considered because of everything it does aesthetically. Yeah, and, and what I find, what I found really fascinating about it, watching it, was... Um, you know, like Jordan Cronin Welf's uh, cinematography definitely like gives a very grandiose image of, of setting up shots to just say like this is a massive world recreated. Mm-hmm. But when the actual film takes place, and I found this just an interesting choice, is you don't so much rest in the grandeur of, of this developed world. This just is life for every character. Yeah. And I thought that was a, I don't know if it's a, a really necessarily a choice. I think Ridley Scott always does that. He doesn't necessarily wallow in the worlds he creates. Um, well, he doesn't... At uh, least back in, during this time. Yeah, I don't think he wastes a lot of time trying to set up why this is. And I think it's less... It's just, well, this is, you know, life in November 2019. Yeah, exactly. And I think lesser films that kind of do a lot of work in creating a world um, do want to really show it off, show off their tricks yeah. and toys. And this movie doesn't. It just, it just is. And I think that was... I think that's why it spoke to me so much is, mm-hmm. is this is one of the first movies that was a relatively modern film. Um, a lot of the more classic cinema, I'd, I'd, you know, of the forties and fifties I'd seen for the production design. Uh, um, big ones that spoke to me like Metropolis, but and that's earlier in the forties, but this is a movie that was a more modern film that created a very unique world and, completely rested in it and and from there on out i i kind of just pursued other films that kind of that were modern and kind of did the same things or at least took notice of when a world used set design used its production design in order to create something yeah i mean i think an interesting you can think about this movie um in terms of does it work without you know it being a sci-fi movie you know, I mean, I guess you can't be hunting replicants, but you could be hunting something. Um, there's because of its sci-fi nature, though. There's an inherent um, unknowable threat that's kind of hard for a viewer to perceive because we don't live in this world, mm-hmm. which 
kind of adds to the existential. Um, I know we talked a lot about dread last week, but it adds to like the anguish that these replicants have kind of started feeling. And see, this is this is where I interestingly diverge from that. I I love the world that's created. And this is why it's on my list. Is is the, just this reason? Uh-huh. I think has a story, at, and a, a lot of the academia on you know it's parallelism with Nazism or nihilism. I think it's kind of bullshit in the sense of I don't think it's a good enough script or a, a terrible it's script. a terrible script or a good enough story overall to really be deeply pursued. And I think that that spoke to me, especially I, I made this list early this year. Um, and the fact that it's sequel, mm-hmm. I think is uh, it doesn't it sequel doesn't show up on my list at all. But I think its sequel is is a measurably better film. I think so it's, too. I had the same thought. It's it's directed by somebody who who has a better uh, visionary uh, vision mm-hmm. visual vernacular. Um, I think. And it's the wave has just just knows how to tell a story through images much better than Ridley Scott did. And it takes it takes the subject matter and the narrative of the original Blade Runner um, deeper. Yeah, like much no, exactly. deeper than than Blade Runner attempts to. Exactly. Um, it's 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 also better acted. It's just one thing that was actually surprising to me was you know talking about the Oscars, Roger Deakins mm-hmm. finally winning for twenty forty nine. I disagreed with because I felt the world kind of had a, still an artifice to it. Um, it felt like it lingered in that that grandiose image. Yeah, and I know, I know that's that's a pretty crazy opinion well, to have it didn't, but it didn't seem lived like you know yeah. for all of blade runner's faults i mean and i guess you can fault it for being made in 1982 when they were just doing what they had to do um to make this kind of create this sci-fi universe um that world seems lived in and even it even seems more realistic than some of the stuff that that um, Villeneuve and, and, and Roger Deakins did, where they were just kind it, of setting feels... up these backdrop shots and then being, look at that. 2049 felt, uh, the world of 2049 felt like a toy set to me. Yeah. Which, you know, a beautifully like, shot toy oh, set. exactly. But and a toy set. Movies like Star Wars, those types of films, Lord of the Rings, movies that won't show up on my list, mm-hmm. um, kind of did the same thing to me. I mean, I enjoy those movies for the flash and circumstance, but not, they, their worlds aren't interesting to me. The original Blade Runner's world is, mm-hmm. and it's it's an intriguing world in the sense that, and this is why why it shows up on my list is just the fact that it was one of the first movies I saw that made me want to know more about that world mm. outside of what was going on with Roy Beatty's story or, or even Deckard. You kind of want to, it gives you just so many small tastes of interesting shots in the background that aren't really focused in, you know, why are umbrellas flashlights as well you know just interesting stylistic choices that aren't weighed down upon Mm. they're just there and and it it, one of the best things a film could do is demand curiosity from its viewer is is um create some sort of intrigue Mm. and this was one of the first films i saw and and something that that kind of then kind of like pursued my love of cinematography and production design I think after seeing this film is when I started really truly noticing it. Um, and the fact that it told its own story. 
Yeah, that's an ex- that's a really excellent point because the story oh, that you. it's told. <laughs> I did it. Fucking did it. Podcast over, guys. Sorry. We're going to cancel the next 94 episodes. I just want Tom's approval. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad we could save ourselves this Tuesday night. This Tuesday night adventure we go on. We can just drink now. Oh yes, thank you. Um, yeah, because the the world building's doing. You know, another fault of the movie, I guess, is that the world and the narrative that's happening inside the world are kind of working at cross purposes. Oh, exactly. Like the world that he's established does not deserve to have something as terrible as every single word that comes out of Leon's mouth when he's fighting Deckard in the street. Oh, yeah. I like Brian Jones. What is that about? Brian Jones? I forget. I don't have it. I didn't write it down. But even Um, Rucker Howard does some of that stuff. Like when they're fighting, you know, in the end on the rooftop, um, he's like, I can see you. It's like, why why are you in your underpants and why can you see him? Yeah, and I think there is, you know, Rucker Howard famously kind of improvised a lot of the things in the end. And I, I... you know, I love the tear. The Tears of Rain speech is great. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain time to die but, oh yeah I, I like but like too. The, the decision of Rugger Howard to kind of grab the dove was fucking goofy to me it just yeah. it just doesn't feel real Pris's character daryl hannah's character is a fucking joke that character is garbage i think Zora's the only really interesting replicant and she's dealt with but they take her quickly. yeah and they kind of remove her yeah um, she's the most interesting of the replicants to me i mean i mean and they Rugger, waste... like roy Beatty does a lot but you know obviously he's giving her focus the, the fact that this side one is like the one that kind of feels like she has a more interesting story or a story that actually kind of attaches to the world and yeah. then she's just thrown to the side. Well, the fact that they kind of reduce her character to answering a bunch of Deckard's bullshit questions on... Just you know, represent. It's like, come on, who cares? You know, she's clearly... You think she's a replicant. So let's have a... Conv- I don't want to say have a conversation, but let's do something interesting with this interaction. Move the action along, at least. Or, yeah, or yeah. just... or. You know, grow the grow the atmosphere more using the the narrative and the characters. I mean, the characters are really just there to move through this world. They don't serve. They don't kind of. They're not like attached to each other at all. And that's why I think, and that's that's just the interesting thing to me. And I, I think that's definitely a reason. Let's let's be honest. I think it, you remove the set design, remove the production, the cinematography. You know, Evangelist's score, I think, plays a, a major role, too. I think that's in, a really good... And I think it's that. a great score. Um, yeah. No denying that. But you remove those three elements, and, and you're, you're left with a okay science fiction noir. Mm-hmm. A passable, let's say, science fiction noir. And let's say you, you put it into a more artificial world. Something like Back to the Future style 2015. Oh, Yeah. But you do that, do you think we even have these conversations? No, about nobody cares about Blade Runner. Even Deckard being a replicant. No. 
No, it, it, I, there isn't, because the only thing, and, and this is the reason this movie you know, shows up on my list, is it's not a movie I love. It's a movie I watch a lot because of the world it creates. I mean, I love, if, if we're talking about you know, top 100 set designs, this is definitely top 10. Um, but it's just interesting that I, I think all of those conversations about the plot of this film mm-hmm. can be reduced to the fact that people really loved how this movie looked and how this movie felt. Well, I think, so, I mean... Otherwise, it's you're talking about, is John McClane actually secretly a German terrorist? <laughs> and I feel like that's something that happens with some of these movies, is that people get so attached to them that they try to find things inside of them to justify Which their is attachment. Great. Which is great. I don't think that's a fault. I think that's no, actually... No, no, no. But a I think great it's... thing about film is is it's it is, you know. Let me. You should finish your point then. No, no. I mean that because I think they're both going to be related to each other. I think um, there's nothing wrong with just saying I want to. I just want to sit inside this this world for a little bit. I want to dig into this world. I want to kind of, you know, I want to see how this world works more deeply than than the movie is giving me. Um, but you can have that kind of aesthetic appreciation. As well as an academic appreciation, you don't have to justify the aesthetic appreciation with this really um, tired and and you know you know ridiculous. We mentioned like the fascism things, um, academic appreciation as well. Yeah, no, and and I was gonna say the the great thing about film and the reason you know we're, we're having this entire podcast is the fact that you know we're both avid readers. We, you love music, um, a film combines the three medias of you know the written word the visual presentation and an auditory experience yeah. and it's okay if a film is exceptional at one or two of those things but is a failure at the third or I'm, a failure at two of the three as long and, as it makes you feel something yeah and and blade runner is a visual and in some ways auditory experience that you know the score wise the sound design's fine um but story-wise, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. It just isn't doing anything necessarily interesting. Well, it's fairly I would written. rather see double in, the story of Double Indemnity done in the Blade Runner world. And you know, would, Double Indemnity would probably be top 10 in my list. Then. That would be awesome. That would be, that would be awesome. Especially if they don't change anything. Like, the story's exactly the same. It's still a 15-mile-per-hour train. He pulls up to the house still trying to sell insurance. <laughs> yeah. But car, the, just car insurance. Yeah, though. yeah. Just <laughs> nothing in the story changes, by the way. For his floating, for the floating car. Yeah, but they don't mention it's a floating car. No, no, no. They don't ever talk about it. It's just this, you know, the same script. Yeah, exactly. But that's the point. Is 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 a movie like Double, a film like Double and Demi shows up on the list because of the story, because of the the acting. No, because of other elements. This movie is is the first movie that that, that is on my list just because it does one thing so Good. exceptionally well. Awesome. And that's really all there's to say about Blade Runner. Do you have any? Other did did you like? read the Philip K. Dick novel? I did not. I did not. I did not either. Neither did Ridley Scott. So is that true? Well, that makes a lot of sense. That actually explains which, a lot what's of things. What's great is Philip K. Dick uh, saw like twenty minutes of it before he died, and it was like, "Oh, they really captured my inner world." And it's like, <laughs> "You fucking nerd." <laughs> All right, uh, we'll be right back with my ninety-five in just a second. Okay, we're back. Uh, my number 95 movie is The Fugitive, the 1993 film directed by Andrew Davis, starring Harrison Ford, 
as Dr. Richard Kimball, a man accused of killing his wife, although he claims it was done by a one-armed man. That one-armed man is played by Andreas Katsoulis. Uh, Richard Kimball eventually eludes capture because of a train crash in the woods of Illinois, and he is pursued in the movie by Deputy U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard, played by the Academy Award-winning Tommy Lee Jones. He won the award for this movie. Um, it also stars Celia Ward as Harrison Ford's wife. And one of the... Who has one of the most early 90s opening death scenes in it. I hadn't seen this movie since I was like... Since it yeah. VHS released, so 94, let's say. Uh-huh. And I remember going like, when I saw it, I really liked it. So I actually watched this film today, and I, I thought I originally really liked it. Mm-hmm. Like, because I, like, I hadn't seen it for years. And I saw that negative shot from the opening of her death, and I'm like, oh, man. Oh, this I is going to be one of those nostalgia movies. Well, I mean, we can have a separate conversation, and I wrote this when we did our 101s to 105s. Um, oh, nostalgia movies? We were watching all those. No, this we is not watch- a nostalgia movie. This is no, a no, great no. movie. But we were watching all those movies, and I was like, oh, movies shouldn't really do credits anymore. Because credits immediately <laughs> date your movie. You know what I mean? Like, the opening scenes of you, your you movie. You mean, like, the Die Hard, like, how die, the Die Hard, like, banging together of Die Hard, and then Harrison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ford. Tommy Lee. Jones. The fugitive mixed with the, like the nice little swoosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sound effect. It's just, it's like, it's, oh my god, this is, this is 1993. And even like something like, um, you know, Seven, which shows up on my list eventually. Um, you know, it gets a lot of credit for having these really great credits. But when you watch them now, you're like, oh, it's so 90s. It's almost hard to take. Yeah, but no, luckily, like that film is nine, like so wallows in its 90sness. Sure, sure, sure. Nice. But it's just, you know, it's one of those things. Um, but this is, you know. It avoids, I think, being an ultimately a 90s movie because, I mean, ultimately what it is is a fairly standard police procedural beautifully acted by its two lead actors, which kind and of Joe takes Pantoliano. it. And Joe Pantoliano. But he's really good. And I think It's so um, great seeing a Joe Pantoliano movie where Joe Pantoliano isn't a squirrely like, villain. Like I was watching, oh, it, he's a squirrely hero. Yeah, I was watching it going like, oh man, does he like end up like? Because I had completely forgotten like the plot of this. Like uh-huh. I said, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. I was like, there's no. I got it conflated with spoilers. U.S. Marshals, uh-huh. where Robert Downey Jr. ends up being the villain in that. And I'm right. Like, does this do the same thing? Is Joe Pantoliano somehow a villain? And no, like halfway through, I'm like, no, he stays a good guy. He does eventually get hit in the face. Yeah, with <laughs> a, a big a hook, ver- a very slow moving steel rod. Yeah, which is. What was that so steel rod doing, doing there? there? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I was, they're in a dryer room? Yeah, they're in the laundry you know, room. Like, Why is there a big, huge metal steel rod just hanging there? <laughs> I just, I'd like to see a separate short film of all like the housekeepers who just routinely walk into that steel beam. <laughs> or even the people that were like, on the production of that movie just kind of turned around and was like, boof. Boof. Or the one really tall guy that took it in the balls or it's, something. It's good to know. That, that is not a fatal steedle beam, though. It was supposed to be, apparently. It was supposed to kill him, but yeah. he lobbied to Do live. Do you think that was supposed to kill him? Do you think like he was supposed to be killed by no, the I think steel he was, beam? If I had to guess... He was going to get shot. He was going to get shot during the scene where um, they picked up the other guy that escaped from the train that Richard Kimball escaped from. So, um, remember when no, he... No, no, I, I think the trivia says he was supposed to be killed in that scene. So, I'm assuming maybe he was... At the end of the movie, though? Because nothing happens at the end of the movie. 
So they just would have killed him, and then they just would have moved on with the movie. Maybe they would have done like a Emilio Estevez style Mission Impossible skull crush really quick. That's, I mean, I'm pro that. I'm pro Emilio Estevez getting his skull crushed. But yeah. Um, so, you know, in this movie, the you know, Joe Pantoliano's in it. Um, it has a really <laughs> early Julianne Moore sighting. Um, Julianne Moore, one of the top credited actresses in this film. Yep, she's in shows it for, up for two two scenes. Two scenes, yeah. Um, Jane Lynch is in it for one scene or two scenes. Just one. She has the one scene when maybe she's talking to him and then on. they question her. Do they question her at all? I don't think you... Maybe she might be in the background. Either way, she's in very few scenes. I was very excited um, when I saw her. I don't know why. I'm not... I think I like Jane Lynch, but I got very excited when I saw Jane Lynch. Well, I think... So here's one of... The, I mean, I think this brings us to the things we need to talk about for this movie really well. You kind of forget what this movie is. It's not of. It's oh, not, it's, 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 yeah. a, it's not a, it's not even like a Blade Runner type. It's a saccharine movie to me. It's, well, I wouldn't say that's saccharine. Well, yeah. well I say saccharine in the sense of like, it's, it's, it is a popcorn film to me, I guess. Like, it is yeah. a popcorn yeah. film. And its pedigree is, is a popcorn film. I mean, Andrew Davis, the year before he directed this, directed Under Siege. Not a popcorn film. Not a, the, oh, it's not the, a popcorn film? Oh, okay. Cinematic treasures um, And he's directed a bunch of, he directed uh, several Steven Seagal movies. Um, the screenplay by like David Tui. Above the law? Yeah. Come <laughs> on, let's mention them. The screenplay by David Tui. Um, David Tui wrote a bunch of Van Damme movies and Waterworld and has and... subsequently written like the Pitch Black Chronicles of Riddick movies. He gave us Riddick. Um, but then the cinematographer, Michael Chapman, um, was the DP on Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and this movie, which in Raging Bull and this movie, he got nominated for Oscars while also doing Space Jam and, and Doc Hollywood. I mean, this is a, um, this is a workman-like production. I think it was only, they only shot for like 29 days or something. And I think the only reason... It does have, and it had like, it's action sequences. That, that, tra- that crash sequence is great it's a good scene yeah i mean except for the fact that you can see the dummies i mean you can make out the dummies when the thing tumbles over 93 (laughs) right that's what i'm saying um so yeah this movie really works on the strength of it's a you know it's a utilitarian movie and it works as an elevated version of that because harrison ford and tommy lee jones are so good and i think and it has the pedigree of a really great cinematography and it's and it's kind of like in the same vein as catch me if you can um Everything works. There's not a lot of... I don't remember any bad shots. There's some really good shots. There's some points where the movie slows down. Um, like the end of the movie. The action sequence through the laundry room and on the roof. There's not a lot happening. A little, a little long. They're just yelling at each other and you know just moving around these kind of blind corners. But for um, a two hour and ten minute long action movie whose chase... Main premise of a chase ends about 40 minutes in mm-hmm. it doesn't have a lot of fat this movie famously had the, all these extra scenes where julianne moore's uh dr ann eastman character becomes a love interest and jane lynch's doctor character is supposed to be like a former love interest um and i think there was supposed to be more wife scenes that's how you get a seal award i think only showing her face one time in like her the whole movie like you know a clear shot of Celia Ward's yeah, face. Yeah, there was there was the the throwback to like the sex scene, which is that was a weird scene. Yeah, um, and then the, the and then the, the call dinner the party scene in the dinner party scene. Yeah, yeah. So not, the not a lot. Scene. Um, so, but the work that Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones are doing kind of make the rest of the movie 
you know, it ups, it ups the tension. So Harrison Ford, I actually, this is, might be one of my favorite Harrison Ford performances in the sense that he's a fairly normal guy with very normal emotions. Um, As Desen House said, he does a hang dog, handsome everyman presence. Well, and I guess I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Yeah, I don't either. I just I saw that on 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 Wikipedia, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. He's you go into this movie knowing he's Harrison Ford, and Harrison Ford is not going to play like a wet blanket character. Um, I think he's going to do Harrison Ford things, and he does. He does his full body punches, where he uses he follows through with his whole body through a punch, which he does in like all of his movies, where he you know stumbling around and stuff. But the thing I think that makes this movie really work is the scenes where Harrison Ford see, or where Richard Kimball seems really scared, yeah, and he seems freaked out, um, and you know, like the scene, and it's one of the scenes that I love the best when he's taking that room um, at that Russian family's house, and he's living in the basement, and the cops come to arrest oh, the son of the, the Russian fear, family, the, and like he seems absolutely terrified. You know, he puts his hand over his mouth. He looks like he's going to cry. Um, but you get that a lot in this movie. Um, and in the same vein, you get a lot of that same stuff from Tommy Lee Jones. Like, Tommy Lee Jones is supposed to be an ultra-hard, you know, callous FBI agent. You know, a U.S. Yes, marshal. He barks orders. He's got – he's really ready with a, a, a quick one-liner. Um, but he's also really human in that he's clearly thinking about this case. And he's – you can see that he's adding up the pieces in his head and they're not adding up. And he's not afraid because the character is so human and is so secure in his job and who he is as a person. He's not afraid to say that stuff out loud. So when he's, you know, when he steals an ambulance and they say, well, he's oh, we saw Kim, we've got Kimball. He's in an ambulance. And he's just like, that's odd. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just kind yeah, of this. One thing I like too is how he gets exhausted. Throughout yeah. The movie. He's like getting tired of it. He just is like done. And, um, and those are the things that when I so I saw this movie, um, you know, I, I came out when I was eleven, so I definitely didn't see it in theaters. But when in the nineties, um, you know, you had videotapes. Your parents bought videotapes, or you know, you knew an older person that had a video. And this you is had, one of the videos. buildings. You had buildings you went into where you could we could take, rent a video, take a videotape out, and then return it in two days. Um, and there's not a lot of blood in this movie. There's not a there's like the, no it's like one of the few films where Harrison Ford doesn't kill anybody right there's no there's only two two deaths no well a couple of, well, no, like three or four deaths, deaths the one um Sykes gets killed uh, oh no Sykes doesn't get killed he just no. bangs his head against the subway uh Whoa. so the wife the transit cop and then the three yeah. in the are two or, the three in the, in the, um, in the house in the, in the chase oh and then the and then the ex con and the ex con that he pops um. It's an intense pop, pop. movie, but this isn't, you know, this is the 90s, so I think this was, what, PG-13? No, oh, definitely. So I'm 100% sure I probably saw this movie when I was 13 or 14. My parents probably rented it. They probably showed it to me. And I... Wait, at 13 or 14, you couldn't watch R-rated movies? Oh, I probably could have. Oh, okay. But I'm saying they wouldn't have gotten that it. Would just, that would just would have been world-changing. But I didn't, I didn't actually... It's funny, because a lot of people talk about how they saw X, Y, and Z R-rated movie when they were a kid. I didn't see any of those movies when I was a kid. I actually kind of had to see them myself. And that's where older cousins and older friends and sleepovers at friends' house whose parents didn't pay any attention to them kind of came in. And you could see some of these movies. And thank I got you, exposed thank to you, some Thank you, Mom, for stuff. saying I was okay to watch Halloween at age of six. <laughs> um, but I do – and I don't have like a, you know, a, a, a specific memory of you know, how I was sitting or what the color of the rug was that I was sitting on or what I was eating when I was watching it. 
but I remember just kind of being wrapped by it and being really invested in in the procedural, how he's going to escape and how he's going to and how every decision he's going to make is going to allow him to escape and and how you know the moment after he before he jumps out of the out of the you know off the dam and he's in the hospital you know he steals the ambulance and um he sneaks into that old guy's room and he steals you know he takes his clothes and he makes himself a, an egg sandwich and he's walking down the hall and he talks to a cop i love the way he eats the egg yeah he's so just disgusting. a re- messy egg sandwich just in his hand um <laughs> And he's talking to a cop, and like I don't—I've never thought about how ridiculous it is that nobody, like one person, came into the room. Um, how long could he possibly have been in there shaving? And you know, he has a perfectly clean Harrison Ford shave, well, no, and he what, slicks back his hair and he gets all dressed. Was for the first twenty minutes, they had a different actor playing Richard Kimball, and then when he shaves the beard, I was like, "Oh, it's Harrison Ford." He's an actor who plays um, a surgeon with a full beard. Because that's super sanitary. That's what you want over an open body. Well, I had read that Andrew <laughs> Davis originally had like they had, they had said they're going to create uh, the skies for him to wear, and Andrew Davis was like, "No, we'll just have him have the beard. He'll shave beard. off." Yeah. Uh, and Eric, like, came out, jumped out of a cake. You know, he's Harrison Ford is not Marlon Brando, but I think he makes the beard work in a scene like when they get sentenced, and you know, they had the judges gavel, and he's playing with his mustache, and he kind of jumps, and he looks really scared. Like he makes it, he turns it into a thing. He turns it into a part of his character. Um, but that scene where he goes, you know, he he's walking out of the hospital, and he talks to a cop, and the cop asks him if he's seen himself, and he's like, "Oh, every day when I look in the mirror, pal." Except the beard. Yeah, of course, the cop's, the cop's like, like mm-hmm. that guy doesn't have a beard. But as like thirteen year old, I was like, oh my god, that's him. He's talking to the cop. The cop's gonna notice now. What's gonna yeah. happen? And I think that's where even even watching it um, right. today, like like the scene, like that scene, I was just like, that's fucking ridiculous. But later on, uh, during the scene where he goes to see um, to the county jail uh-huh. to see the other one armed man and like Robert, not Robert Downey Jr. I'm getting U.S. Marshals mixed up in my head. <laughs> not Wesley Snipes movie, Mario. Not the Wesley Snipes <laughs> one. Um, when Tommy Lee Jones is climbing up the staircase and Kimball's going down, um, you're like, oh, God, they're going to run into each other. And well, it's like, oh, they're on different staircases. And then, like, the scene with the Irish, uh, the St. Patrick's Day parade, which apparently was totally improvised. Well, yeah, they had just done that because Andrew Davis was from Chicago. It was like, people are going to love the Chicago parade. When he knew that it was happening... So he just he just took a camera guy and Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford and just had them do stuff, which is great. Cause and there's and you can see the people just kind a, of turning around to look at them like. Is yeah. that there's also a really great Ford? shot in that I love where, where Tommy Lee Jones is trying to see where Richard Kimball is. Yep, and he fuck, I like how I keep saying Tommy Lee Jones like his character to me, like the Sam Gerard, Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, um, like jumps up to like see above like the couple rows, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's ridiculous, but great. It's great. It is. And that's, I mean, it's, it, it's and that's all this movie is is ridiculous but great, and it and because of when it came out, I remember enjoying it, having a, a real visceral enjoying like response to it, um, and there's you know not a lot happens um, in terms of violence or anything like that, so it's one of those movies that I could watch and not have to feel weird about. Neil like, Flynn I wasn't, would disagree. <laughs> wasn't he was a transit cop that got killed. Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, no, it's funny because you, know, you mentions it later in Scrubs that he's not in Fugitives. Is that true? In Fugitive, yeah. Oh, cool. It's a good little Scrubs reference. Oh, good. Um, so, I mean, that's, 
the crux of why this movie is on my list is because even when I was watching it uh, a couple weeks ago, I was having roughly the same emotions. And when he goes over that dam, which is kind of the most famous scene, um, you know, and Tommy Lee Jones improvised the I don't care when, you know, when Richard Kimball says I didn't kill my wife and Sam Gerard says I don't care. That was improvised. I didn't know it was improvised. But I remember thinking, well, that's a great line. It just fully encompasses that Gerard character. And then I think the jumping off the dam thing in Living was could be really stupid in another movie. And perhaps is really stupid in this movie. But Tommy but Tommy Lee Jones and, and, and Harrison Ford sell that they make you they invest you in him jumping over that you forget how dumb it's it is that it's he lives. It's definitely a movie that. that like and it mentions it and it kinda like hand waves it. But this is a movie that is lives in its ridiculousness enough to where the hand waving is okay. Yeah. I think so too. And because it's so well done. Because it's so sincere right. in its Perfect. hand waving. Yes. That and its ridiculousness and, and, and the fact that like you're transported to this other world where things aren't necessarily how they would actually be. The fact that, that cop would see Richard Kimball be like, hey, Come, come, come! It's come facts. On. He, come he's, on, he's reading enough of facts. Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, there's an alternative <laughs> universe where that movie ends there, and just Richard Kimball like throwing his egg sandwich on the floor. Like, damn it! All right, fine. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> My wife was. I guess I killed her too. Um, but all the or way- like there's an actual trial, and like they go, wait, this is ridiculous. There's no way he can't have done this. Right, right, right. Um, but like even the one-armed man stuff, um, and him, you know, going into his house and and. You know, seeing the cop parked in front of the street. There's all these moments of really cheap procedural, um, oh, there's, you there's... know, tension. But Harrison Ford makes it work because he's just so, like, he's so human and he seems so vulnerable. Even though he's making every good decision so he can keep running away, yeah. he doesn't seem like a superhero. He doesn't seem like he clearly has a really good plan for this. He just kind of keeps getting away. I mean, he's doing superheroic stuff, but he's selling it as an everyman. Yeah. Um that's what's funny too is is that uh, you know to bring up that point is is a lot of this movie's very nineties has we mentioned like that negative shot James Dean Howard's fucking garbage score. Oh, it's so well, it's just standard issue. If you if, if you, you have a if you if have you a helicopter listen, shot over Chicago, this is what your movie has to sound like. I kind of want to get Eric Clapton <laughs> and James Newton Howard in a room and just have. James Dean Howard isn't dead, right? He's still alive? I don't know. I think so. Um, get him in a room, and just Eric Clapton can, like, play the score from Lethal Weapon and be like, this is how you do that score. Yeah, yeah, And then James Dean Howard's like, I'm not that good. So I just, it's got to go burn him. Yeah. The, the Chicago the sky, Chicago skyline told me I have to make it sound like this. I have to. I don't have any a, other choice. A really badly done saxophone solo. But no, a lot of this movie is very 90s, but... Tommy Lee Jones, Harrison Ford, and some of the side, like some of the smaller actors, like Joe Pantoliano, and some of your other favorite '90s actors whose mm. names don't matter. But like, I was like, "Oh, you're the guy that looks like movie. Judge Reinhold." Yeah. yeah. Or um, oh god, the the one guy who was like the chubby guy. I think he was in another. Yeah. He was in um. He was in Matlock. Was, he was in Matlock. He, uh, was he also in um? On Deadly Ground. Maybe. I think he might have been on Deadly Ground. Or. Maybe it might be. It was definitely in a Seagal movie. So, I mean, I'm not going to look it up. Just, I mean, let's have a quick conversation but, real quick about the idea that Tommy Lee Jones won Best Supporting Actor for this. Because I know you wanted to bring this up over Ray Fiennes for Schindler's List. Yeah, and, and like this is a big thing, too. Like, we mentioned with Blade Runner. Um, I think people at the time just weren't willing to accept this was a fun movie. 
The Fugitive? The Fugitive, yeah. yeah, Like, taking the quote from Roger Ebert where he talks about, you know, uh, but the film is larger and more encompassing than the series. Davis paints with bold visual strokes so that the movie rises above its action film origins and becomes operatic. What the fuck are you talking about? It doesn't. It's, no, he, Davis directs it really well. And Under Siege, like, I want to talk about Under Siege really quick. Under Siege is great. Yeah, it's a good action movie. Under Siege is fucking awesome. Like, the only reason Steven Seagal has a career is because of the law and under siege. Because mm-hmm. Andrew Davis was a pretty good he knows what he's doing. action director. And, every, and this is a really good action everybody movie. It's okay in, if it's just an action yeah, movie. Yeah, and everybody involved with this movie is really good. I and mean, we had the same conversation about, you know, Catch Me If You Can, where if everybody's good, generally the movie that comes out is going to be a good movie. Yeah. And if it catches you at the right time and in the right headspace or you're the right kind of person it'll end up on your top 100 list of favorite films. And you know yeah, what I mean? And, and that's just and, the kind of movie it is. And, like, I, I will not argue that Tommy Lee Jones didn't deserve to be nominated. Tommy Lee Jones famously worked with Andrew Davis and just basically, like, write his character. And yeah. be like, I'm going to do this. And Andrew Davis is like, okay. And I'm okay with the film getting nominated for Best Picture. You know, like we talked about earlier, when a movie does what it's supposed to do really well, fucking accept it. And just say, like, that's doing it really well. Well, this was a surprise. I mean, everyone that reviewed it was like, this is pretty good. And it made a shit ton of money. Yeah. And so, you know, it got nominated. But it didn't... I mean, I guess we would have a a broader conversation about this movie if it had beat Schindler's List Could you imagine? No, I can't. Could you imagine Steven Spielberg saying they're going like, what? Yeah, what's that? I'm just going to get up anyway, okay? I'm I'm sorry, yeah. I'm just going to push Andrew Davis down. (laughs) Like, if Andrew Davis had been like... I'm going to basically accept this. Like, if he had actually got nominated for director. Oh, that would have been a great year just kind after of like, being nominated for, he, like, doing Under Siege. He's holding the Academy Award just looking disgustedly. Ugh, he's just Jesus. like, what? Oh. Or he's just like, he's I'm just like, sorry. scratching I don't, I don't. out the nameplate to put yeah. Under Siege in. Because, <laughs> like, you know, I actually, I would have I would have accepted Andrew Davis winning Best Director over Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood didn't win for this year, did he? No, oh, for the year before. For Oh, for Unforgiven? Yeah. No, fuck you. Yeah. Oh, I love Unforgiven might show up on one of our lists later. Um, but I think the but, reason, I think Tommy Lee Jones, I think winning to me is okay because in the same way that another character actor that's in a movie that's on both of our lists um, hits a lot of notes that you didn't get to see. You didn't, exactly. you oh, didn't yeah. see a lot. I mean, he brought you a new character, flesh and blood, um, fully lived in, Something something new to the movies. And um, in a conversation we've had before off mic. Yep. Ray Fiennes, I think, lost. I don't necessarily think Tommy Lee Jones won. Mm. Ray Fiennes is too He's too good. good. Yeah. We talked about Django Unchained before. It's mm-hmm. a movie that almost showed up on your list. Yep. Um, DiCaprio... Is brilliant in that movie. It's fantastic. Famously, yeah, he's why it's famously almost showed up on my list. Bleeds by breaking a glass, scaring like even Tarantino. Yep, the fucking guy who like probably has a collection of feet somewhere. When he was inspecting a on, on the skull, he yeah. cracked that skull. Yeah, and he cut himself. And there's, I mean, and Tarantino left the shot in of Christoph Waltz and Jamie Foxx just looking at each other like what he is, probably what is also left now? the shot in because he was afraid of DiCaprio at the moment. But but so so DiCaprio loses. Like completely, he doesn't out. even get nominated, nominated yeah. to to Waltz, who's good in that movie, but not DiCaprio. Not DiCaprio, and everyone said that. Yeah, and it's the fact that you, it's too and real. Golf is is too evil, too real, too lived in. Yeah, it, you almost feel like you're 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 awarding 
the villainy of the of the character, the, the the evilness of the character. And Tommy Lee Jones just plays a really good popcorn character. Yeah, and it's a really well done popcorn character. That entire like I don't bargain speech is excellent. It's a great bar. Yeah, it's a great speech. Yeah, it just it just sells that character. And the fact that like he does these little notes like we talk about like of well, selling the exhaustion. Well, and that's a perfect scene to talk about because before that he's all quips and funniness and kind of you know. Like I said, he's barking orders, but he's also really laid back that he's joking around with his crew. But when, when the, you know, chips are on the fucking table, he just reaches his arm around the corner and shoots a guy when he's holding one of his men. And the fact that and like, that guy gets mad and he says, "Guess what? I don't fucking care. I don't and, bargain." And the fact that like he's you can he sells unspokenly an anger towards his own man for like getting caught, but he's like he knows it's it, it feels almost like I don't know exactly. Like, it's all unspoken, but he sells that as, like, he's mad at him, but he can't be mad at him. But yep. he's human enough to, like, have those feelings. And he kind of sells those feelings with how he sits mm-hmm. and stands. And he's like, whatever, you've suffered enough for, like, having a bit of hearing problems and, like, getting caught. And he forgives him later on. Like, yeah, you yeah. can tell he forgives But none of this is spoken. And, like, that's why it's definitely a, a role that was well worth nomination. And, in a, to me, in a different year worth winning. I do think... But I think the conversation we have now is the fact that everyone does say Ray Fiennes. Is, that's one of the best portrayals in film. Well, nobody's going to... But a, that's something that yeah. when you have decades removed from it, you can talk about it. In that moment, well, you could not give And the Ray fact Fiennes that the Schindler's List is Schindler's List. I mean, it, it stands by itself forever. It's, yeah. not, it's, a, it's one of those completely timeless movies. It's a cultural touchstone, but also a historical touchstone. And the fugitive is the fucking fugitive. And, and if it wasn't on my list, are we having a? If are you and me having a fugitive conversation tonight at the bar? If the if we're not making this no. podcast, it's not on my list. No, and, and ninety three no. was you know famous like really a great year for for movies that made you feel good too. Like yeah, Jurassic Park earlier in that year um, might show up on another. Yeah, who knows? But Schindler's List is a movie that like destroyed me when I saw it, and it it just. I, I myself can't even put it on my list. I couldn't put Schindler's List on uh, on my, my list just because, well, like, how much I don't it even, didn't even shape my vision of film. It just made me feel. It made me feel exactly what I needed to feel. But and I hate that we're going to turn to Schindler's List speech. But I think it's important because I think, you know, I think uh, a theme, you know, talking going from our Oscar conversation to Blade Runner to now is just like sometimes you got to accept a film for what it's trying to do. And Fugitive doesn't set out to be. Tommy Lee Jones told Joe Pantoliano when they're producing the films, um, or this is in the IMDb trivia, you know, we're not making a movie that's going to win any awards. No. And they didn't set, they clearly didn't set out no, to win any awards. A, they went to make a really entertaining movie that was going to make a bunch of money. It did that, but then it was really good at that. And that's, and, and, and I think here's that's one, enough. And it's another thing to consider too, is that nobody's comparing Schindler's List to The Fugitive. And nobody that's involved with no. The Fugitive would compare it to Schindler's List. I mean, they're just on two different planes of existence, but they both are, you know, were considered the two of the top five movies of 1993. Um, so they're on the list together. Yeah, exactly. And and and, and they, but like, they're different. They, they're completely different yeah, movies. In the fact that, like, I can mention many scenes from Schindler's List that, that I've only seen Schindler's List twice in my life. Um, there's still scenes like the, the girl. You know, the girl in the red dress on the pile of bodies. Like, I was watched that one at seven and just started crying, you know? And and I know those scenes are the scene where Goth is, you know, just using people as target practice. You know, you remember those scenes. Yep. Fugitive was a movie that 
I completely forgot major plot points. Right. And, and, and that's not to a disservice to the fugitive. The fugitive is really excellent at and we're what not, it does. We're not saying the fugitive is be- Because the fugitive no, is on not. my list and Schindler's List is not, I'm not saying that the fugitive is better than Schindler's List. I'm just saying that I had an emotional, that I have a personal connection to the fugitive and how I watch movies um, versus something like Schindler's List where I don't really really... It stands I don't even it really, by itself. I don't even really know what to do with it. Yeah, it stands it's, by itself. It stands like in this a, little microcosm. It's a new. It's an. It, it, you know, in 1993, Steven Spielberg created a new archetype for film, and it is. And it's. And there's this. It, it's Schindler's List. And Jurassic Park. He actually created two. And Jurassic Park. Yeah. So I mean, 1993 was a good Calm year. Calm down, Spielberg. For Jesus. Steven Spielberg. Um. But I think you know. But this is where these things exist. These things exist in your memory, and they exist in your sense memory, and uh, you know. And it's okay. We're gonna. I mean, that's one of the things we're gonna do on this podcast. Is like if uh, you know, we're gonna talk about the fugitives and Schindler's List simultaneously. Yeah, and exactly. It's okay to have those movies that you have a deep emotional reaction to on a very visceral level that you can talk about from an academic perspective. That you can say why that movie shaped mm-hmm. a view of film. Something like Green Room, for as much of its posturing and just generally being a genre film spoke to me on that sort of sure. level. Something like Blade Runner, uh, and, and I could only assume Fugitive, mm-hmm. speak to us on a level of, like, they're fun or they just do one thing. But yeah. that thing is so important or that thing is so well done But that I think it it's, is I mean, there. That, that's the reason Blade Runner is higher on my list, even right. though I think Green Room's a much better movie. And not to dig into psycho, not to dig into too much of the psychology here, but, you know, as you develop as a person, there's things you hang on to as kind of nuggets of your personality. And... You know, to just to bring it back to Schindler's List real quick, I you know, besides an awareness of something that I generally was less aware than I should have been, I'm not sure what I got out of Schindler's List. Um, but there's something in The Fugitive that I that I there's some uh, there's some emotions that I have from watching The Fugitive that I've hung on to for a really long time, and that when I watched it a couple of weeks ago, when I made you know when we I was doing preparation for the podcast. Um, all came back to me. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and I might look at Schindler's List. I've read a bunch of, um, you know, I've read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, you know, recently. It might color my viewing of, of Schindler's List. I've, you know, dove into that period of history more than I did when I originally saw it in 1993 um, or 94, whenever. Um, and I would, I would see it, I would see it differently now. Um, I think one of the things of how this list works is that I don't really see the fugitive differently. I'm watching the fugitive as like a 14 year old. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that's why it's, that's why it's here. Hey, can't fault that. All right. Um, I think that's it for today. I think that says it all. Go to, um, uh, pivotalfilm.com. Write us at pivotalfilmpodcast.com. Um, at gmail.com. At pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Um, uh, we're gonna have social media at some eventually. Point. I done you it. know, keep your eyes peeled. I for really, it. I hope I have it like an episode like forty three. I'm like, guys, guess what? We got Twitter. We did it. We did it. Twitter's up. Um, By then, we have like a fan page with like already twenty thousand followers <laughs> that some fan has created. That would be ideal. Or just twenty thousand people that are just like, you think Schindler's List is worse than The Fugitive? It's like, we're both, oh no, we're, we're, we're too that. busy filming our Moon Knight adaptation because Marvel scooped us up. Yes, oh, I would so do. I loved Moon Knight when I was a kid. I don't know. I just I heard. It probably has. There's a lot of violence in that, right? 
I do all the gore stuff. I don't remember. You can do, you can do, the, you can do the rest of it. I just loved how Moon Knight looked. I don't even know it. I all don't right. even know Moon Knight. I just know Moon Knight's rated R. It should be. So I was like, well, that probably is something that does. <laughs> all right. So that's the end of this uh, episode. Um, thanks for listening. Um, go watch a movie, drink a beer, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>